Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. I want to say a special thank you to all of our donors who make this podcast possible by donating at paradoxgiving.com. We are wrapping up our series in the book of First Chronicles, and today's teaching is entitled Mishal's Defiance. Today's sermon is about a woman named Mishal. Now, she is a biblical heroine that is relatively unknown in the Christian community. My hope is that by the end of this sermon, you will walk away with three things. Number one, you'll be inspired by the brave actions of Mishal. Number two, you will understand why the church does not tell the story of Mishal. And number three, you will see how the story of Mishal offers wisdom for our disheartening struggles in 2020. During this teaching, we are going to read every passage in the Bible that mentions Mashal, because her story is worth telling. The story of Mashal unfolds around the year 1025 BCE in the newly formed nation of Israel. When I say newly formed, I mean that Israel still has the new car smell lingering in the air. Because around this time, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, unites the 12 tribes of Israel and becomes the nation's first king in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Now the author of Samuel introduces us to Mishal in 1 Samuel 14. We read, Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger was Mishal. Mishal is Saul's daughter, and she is the second princess of Israel. In the very next chapter, things begin to deteriorate for Saul. The prophet Samuel orders Saul to go to war with the Amalekites and mercilessly slaughter any survivors. Saul attacks, conquers, and slaughters the Amalekites, but he inexplicably decides to spare the Amalekite king. The prophet Samuel sees the spared Amalekite king and throws a tectonic temper tantrum. He spews anger, pronounces retribution, casts judgment, and declares that God no longer sees Saul as fit to be king. On what he believes to be a mission from God, Samuel retaliates against Saul by anointing a new king named David. This is a problem because, you know, Saul is still on the throne. If you live in an ancient society with a king on the throne, and you want to keep peace with that king, the number one thing that you do not do is crown another king while the current king is still sitting on the throne. This is not how you bring tranquility to the land. For the record, the prophet Samuel is not a peacekeeper. To make matters worse, the rebellious heir apparent David defeats the Philistine champion Goliath of Gath and becomes the toast of the town. Saul is filled with jealousy. David's popularity is soaring while Saul's popularity is receding. Saul wants David to be dead, and he wants David to be dead now. When David visits Saul in his royal palace, Saul rifles a spear toward David in an effort to kill him, but David quickly dodges the weapon and escapes. Shortly after this attempted murder, the author brings us back to Mishal. The author writes, Now Saul's daughter Mishal loved David. 
And in a creepy twist, we then read, Saul was told and the thing pleased him. Now, why would Saul be pleased to hear that his daughter loved the very man that he just attempted to murder? The reason is because Saul believes he can use his daughter's feelings and emotions for his own political gain. Rather than asking for a monetary sum for Michal's hand in marriage, Saul comes up with a rather unconventional dowry for Michal. He says to David, The king desires no marriage present except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged on the king's enemies. Can I get a hallelujah to this story? (laughs) The urologists listening to this podcast are thrilled to read this verse. Saul asked for 100 foreskins because he, quotes, planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, close quote. So let's get this story straight, shall we? Saul hears that his daughter, Michal, loves David. And to win her hand in marriage, Saul sends David on a suicide mission to murder 100 Philistines and bring back their foreskins as proof. So David goes. He conquers. And then he whacks some skin off of the Philistines' dinglings and brings those skins back to Saul. (laughs) Which raises the question, who was assigned to count all of those foreskins? I mean, that was someone's job in the royal court, right? Did Saul count the foreskins himself? Moving on, we read, quote, Saul gave David his daughter Michal as a wife, close quote. And the chapter comes to a close with these words. But when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that Saul's daughter Michal loved him, Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy from that time forward. In chapter 19, the very next chapter, Saul tries to kill David for a third time by returning to his roots and hurling yet another spear at David. But Saul misses again. That evening, Michal can't take it anymore. Michal says to David, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal smuggles David out of the royal quarters by lowering him down through the window. Wanting to cover her tracks, Michal took an idol and laid it on her bed. She put a net of goat's hair on the idol's head and covered the idol with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David away to kill him, she said to the messengers, David is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back after hearing these words to see David for themselves. Saul said to them, bring David up to me in his bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came into Michal's room, the idol was in the bed with the covering of goat's hair on its head. Saul heard about this and he raced downstairs. He confronted Michal. Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michal answered her father. David said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now the story changes dramatically after Michal helps David escape from her father. For the rest of 1 Samuel, David is a fugitive constantly evading Saul as Saul attempts to kill David. At this point, Michal disappears from the recorded narrative for a while, but we need to keep a focus on her. So far, we have read that Michal is the princess of Israel. Michal is in love with David. 
Michal is betrayed by her father. I mean, he exploited her feelings for political gain in an effort to murder her husband. And then Michal risked everything to protect David. It's Michal's intuition and initiative that kept David alive in this story. However, David repays his life debt to Michal by marrying another woman, Abigail. After marrying Abigail, the author informs us that David has somehow picked up another wife, Ahinoam. And there are very few depictions or paintings of Ahinoam that exist today. After telling us that David now has at least three wives, the author fills us in on what happens to Michal. The author writes, Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish, who was from Galim. Six chapters later, Saul meets his death in the final battle with the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. And Saul's death brings a close to the book of 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel opens with Saul's son, Ishbal, being crowned as the next king of Israel. But David desperately wants to be king. And David believes that he is chosen by God to ascend to the throne. Now, a quick side note here. I assume that if we could interview Ishbal for this story, Ishbal would adamantly declare that God wanted him to be king. Always remember that history and religious texts are written by the winners. Now, because David wants to be king and because he believes that God wants him to be king, David declares war on Saul's son Ishbal. We read, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. There is a civil war that has erupted and then it begins to wind down and it becomes apparent that David will overtake the house of Saul. As the civil war is winding down, David sends messengers to the king Ishbal saying, give me my wife Mishal. Now, this demand could be considered a romantic moment. After all, Michal risked her life to save David, and David here returns for his bride. Unfortunately, this story involves David, and he is not romantic at all. Because after requesting his wife be returned to him, he says, Give me my wife, Michal, to whom I became engaged at the price of 100 foreskins of the Philistines. The romance is dead. It's almost as if David is saying, I legally own her. Give her to me. Ishbal complies with this request. We read, Ishbal sent and took Mashal from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But Paltiel went with Mashal, weeping as he walked behind her all the way to Bahurim. Now, we don't know how Mashal feels about Paltiel, but we do know how Paltiel feels about Mashal. Paltiel is in love with Michal, and he is filled with sorrow as powerful men are taking away the woman he loves. This is a heartbreaking scene in scripture. Maybe Michal is indifferent to Paltiel. Maybe she loves him. We don't really know for sure. But what is abundantly clear is that Paltiel loves Michal more than David does, David has, or David ever will. Paltiel loves Mashal. David believes he owns Mashal. 
This contrast is important to remember during the rest of Mashal's story. As Paul Thiel is crying, Abner, Ishbal's general, says to Paul Thiel, go back home. So Paul Thiel went back. Now the author of 2 Samuel does not record the reunion of Mashal and David. While some may choose to believe it was a happy reunion, I can imagine Mashal seeing David years after she risked her life to save him and being utterly disgusted by the shock of meeting his new wives, Abigail and Ahinoam. Reading between the text, I picture David meeting Mashal with sheer indifference, similar to the indifference of the author in the lack of his effort to record this reunion. In the very next chapter, King Ishbal is gruesomely assassinated, and then David is crowned king over all of Israel. David's first action as king is to move the capital from Jebeah to Jerusalem. He then successfully defends Judah from a Philistine attack. And after both of these actions, we read the final story of Mashal in the historical narrative of Samuel. The story goes like this. To cement the relocation of the new capital city, David determines that he needs to move the Ark of the Covenant, which was believed to be the very throne of God, into the city of Jerusalem, the new capital. So David, along with several men, retrieve the ark and triumphantly parade all the way back to Jerusalem. In David's mind, this movement of the ark is cause for a national celebration. And while this may be true, please understand that this is also an overt political statement. The presence of God is moving from the land of Saul into the city of David, with David, the new king, leading the way. The author tells us that as David leads this processional, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a bit of a dance legend. I can cut a rug like my feet are twin machetes. When Sister Sledge wrote the song, He's the Greatest Dancer, they were writing that song about me. I tell you all this because if you are dancing with all of your might, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> Imagine going to a club and seeing somebody dance with every muscle they had as hard as they could possibly move it. It's not real graceful, is it? So here is David wildly flailing. And as he is flailing, we read, David was girded with a linen ephod. Now the ephod was a religious apron that the high priest wore over his robes. We aren't 100% sure of the shape of this apron, but we know that the ephod was multicolored and covered in ornate patterns. So I've seen some depictions of ephods that go all the way down to one's knees and some that cut off at the waist and others that are open in the front. Keep that in mind because David is making an overt political statement while clothed in an ultra-religious garment. And he dances as hard as he can dance to bring attention to this statement. Not everyone was pleased with his dancing. We read, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. With great repulsion, 
Michelle decides that she cannot stay quiet. She blatantly confronts her husband, the king of Israel, about his dancing. She starts off her defiance with dripping sarcasm. She says to him how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' maids as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. Mashal is furious because her husband uncovered himself in front of other women. Because of Mashal's comments, commentators go back to verse 14 of this chapter and believe that the author intended to say that David danced with all of his might while wearing a linen ephod and only a linen ephod. This ephod provided minimal coverage when he danced in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so pictures that reveal a little bit more skin of David dancing are much more accurate in the way that Mashal saw David dancing in front of other women. Now, may I remind you that we don't know what the shape of an ephod was during David's day and age. And when you consider he's only wearing an ephod, an ephod that is only down to the waist is rather problematic in this story. So Mashal, who loved David, who risked her life to save David, who felt whatever she felt when David returned with more wives than when he left, cannot stand the sight of David dancing naked in front of other women. Now, Michelle could have chosen silence in this story, and who could blame her? David is the king of Israel. Many people believe God chose David to be the king. If she stands up to him, then she risks everything again, which is the story of Michal's life. The men closest to her, her father and her husband, only care about Michal as much as she can help them achieve their own goals of power. But the story unfolds and she is bravely standing up to the king. She tells him to stop exposing himself to other women. Mashal is embodying a moral conscience that is millenniums ahead of her time. Now, in response to this confrontation, David's character is fully revealed. He rebukes Mashal and says some of the most horrible words in Scripture. He says to Mashal, My dancing was before the Lord, who chose me in place of your father and all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I have danced before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in my own eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor." And then we read the last words about Mashal in the historical narrative of Samuel when the narrator writes, And Mashal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. After Mashal confronts David about exposing himself to younger women, David quickly retorts that he can do whatever he wants because God chose him to be king and not Mashal's deceased father. David then informs Mashal that if she is offended by this behavior today, then just wait, because it's about to get a lot worse. David wants Mashal to know that David is king, 
and any woman who gets to look at his genitals should consider herself to be honored. David then locks her away, and she dies alone. The story of Michal is a tragedy. Her father exploits her, her husband discards her, and the most likely male author of Samuel does very little to tell her story from her perspective. Whenever I read the story of Michal, I am deeply disturbed by the sins of the patriarchy and by the sins of David. And just when we think that this story has hit rock bottom, we realize that there is one more verse in all of scripture that mentions Michal. And this verse reveals that we can sink even deeper. Michal's last mention in the Bible is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 29. This chapter is a retelling of David's dance leading the ark into the new capital, Jerusalem. Two things are important to note before we read this last verse about Michal. The first is that this is the only mention of Michal in all of Chronicles. The author of Chronicles does not include the story of Michal loving David, the story of 100 foreskins, the story of Michal helping David escape, or the story of David retrieving Michal from Ishbal. In fact, the author of Chronicles never even mentions that Michal is married to David. Which brings us to the second thing that we must take note of before we read this verse. 1 Chronicles 15.29 is a nearly identical copy to 2 Samuel 6.16. So you may experience a bit of deja vu when we read this verse for the first time. The author of Chronicles writes, As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishal, daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing, and she despised him in her heart. Mishal then fades from the story as quickly as she appeared. And there is no mention of her confrontation with the king. But something else about this story is different. Two verses before the one that mentions Mishal, in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 27, the author of Chronicles writes about David dancing in a linen ephod. But in that same verse, the author tells us that David was clothed with a robe of fine linen. Now, there is a big difference between wearing an ephod by itself and wearing an ephod with a robe underneath it. As stated earlier, the ephod is the apron that goes over the robe. And a robe that was worn underneath is something that we know the shape of. A robe went from the shoulders all the way down to the ankles. So this small addendum changes the entire story. All of a sudden, in Chronicles, Mashal despises David for his artistic expression. But in 2 Samuel, she despises him for exposing his genitals to other women. This is a major contradiction in scripture. The author of Chronicles gets to the story of David dancing in the near nude and decides to glue a robe on him in the historical record. Why did the author of Chronicles change the story? Why did they decide to contradict what the author of Samuel previously recorded? To answer that question, we need to remember where the recorded history of Samuel and Chronicles comes from because they did not come from the same era 
or the same questions. Samuel and Chronicles record the same events in history, but with dramatically different details, facts, and stories. The contradiction in these historical accounts are due to two factors. The first factor is that they were written 200 years apart from each other. First and Second Samuel originates from the 6th century BCE, and First and Second Chronicles is a product of the 4th century BCE. Theology, science, and human consciousness all progressed over the 200 years between these writings. So the first factor that led to contradictions is the passage of time and the development of human consciousness. The second factor is that both of these historical records sought to answer the pressing theological question of their respective day. The history of Samuel is framed around the question, how did we end up in Babylonian exile? Five generations later, the author of Chronicles recorded history revolving around a very different question. Are we still the people of God? Samuel answers the first question by saying, God is still good, but we deserved exile. While Chronicles answers their question with, we are still the people of God, because we have the temple. The second factor leading to the contradictions is that both histories are seeking to answer different questions. It's important to separate the theological questions and timeframes that guided each author's historical narrative. This separation is essential to understanding why these stories are wildly varied and frequently contradict each other. The author of Samuel held a clear agenda. They wanted the reader to believe that God is good for allowing the exile to occur. The author of Chronicles held a different agenda. The author wanted the reader to believe that the temple was the unquestionable foundation of their entire faith. This author of Chronicles declares whether a king is good or bad based on how much they prioritized worship and stewardship of the temple. Not only that, but the author of Chronicles emphasizes the power and hierarchy of the priests who tend to the temple. In the author of Chronicles' eyes, the temple workers and the temple institution are always moral, upstanding, and unquestionably good. When we read Chronicles closely, it is easy to dismiss it as religious propaganda. I must admit, Chronicles on its own is entirely problematic. But here is the beauty of the Bible. Chronicles doesn't stand on its own. Instead, Chronicles sits right alongside 1st and 2nd Samuel in Christian Bibles. And it's in the contrast and contradictions between these two histories that we find the greatest wisdom. Dr. John J. Collins from Yale Divinity School once wrote, The character of Chronicles is most easily seen by comparing its narrative with that of Samuel and Kings. We can see this character in the way that Chronicles tells the story of David in contrast with the story of David in Samuel. Remember, the author of Samuel wants his audience to believe that God was justified in allowing the exile to occur. So in Samuel, we read about David's sins, which include committing treason, manipulating others for political gain, perpetrating sexual abuse, murdering Uriah after David slept with Uriah's wife, unwilling to pursue justice for the rape of his daughter to protect his son, unwilling to pursue justice for the murder of his son to protect his other son, and taking a census. 200 years later, the author of Chronicles retells the story of David 
and they take out the treason, manipulation, abuse, murder, and unwillingness to pursue justice and leave in David's least offensive sin the one time that David took a census. The author of Chronicles erases all of David's consequential sins. Why? Because the author of Chronicles holds a clear agenda. In Israelite history, David is inextricably linked to the construction of the temple. David selects the building sites. He acquires all of the building materials. He commissions the architectural drawings. He does everything short of building the temple, which his son Solomon will do. The temple, the crown jewel of the religious establishment and the architectural manifestation of the book of Leviticus is David's vision and creation. In the 4th century BCE, 700 years after the life of David, the author of Chronicles erases nearly all of David's sins in an effort to present the morally questionable origin of the temple in a more favorable light. The historical erasure of David's sin is committed to boost the reputation of the temple in the author's present day. We ask the question, why did the author of Chronicles change the story about David's dance and add a robe when Samuel records that David was dancing naked? The answer is because the author's agenda is for the reader to know that they can trust the institution of the temple as morally good. Therefore, the author has a strong interest in presenting the visionary founder of the temple, David, as a morally upstanding, almost messianic figure. And if someone needs to tell the world that David is a moral and upstanding hero of the faith, then you can believe that that same person is going to completely erase Mishal from the narrative. Even though Mishal is the one who stands up for what is clearly right, even though David shakes his gonads in front of non-consenting women, even though the basic facts of history need to be changed to serve the agenda of the author, the story we have ended up with in Chronicles is that David was a good and godly king, and Mashal and her story are forgotten. The way that Samuel and Chronicles record and tell the story of Mashal teaches us that men will erase women from the narrative to preserve a reputation. We all need to be aware of this. For thousands of years, men have controlled the history, the religion, and the stories about our history. And those men, time and time again, conveniently omit women from their stories that challenge the morality of men they admire, the nations they swear their allegiance to, and the churches men preach from in their pulpits. Now, I grew up in the church, and I remember hearing a sermon where the pastor encouraged everyone to dance with the same zeal that David danced when he led the ark into Jerusalem. Not only that, but I sang a song in church several times, mind you, where I proudly exclaimed that I will dance like David danced. Time and time again, pastors told me that I needed to have great faith like David because David was a man that we could all admire. And none of those pastors mentioned Mashal until I got all the way to grad school 
And a professor pointed out that David's behavior in the story of Mashal is abhorrent. We need to stop celebrating David in the church. He is one of the most morally deprived figures in the Bible. And the only way that we can truly celebrate him is if we choose to erase the stories of Mashal, Bathsheba, Abigail, Ahinoam, Tamar, and all of his sex slaves. We need to stop celebrating David in the church, and we need to start celebrating women in Scripture. Mashal is a hero worth celebrating. She defied the king. She stood up for women everywhere. And while she was struck down and locked away thousands of years ago, she lives on as the true hero of this story. Mashal's defiance and subsequent erasure from the narrative tells us that men, all men, every man, will erase women from the narrative to preserve a reputation. This is not a new phenomenon. This is a wisdom rooted deep in our scriptural tradition. And this tells us that for men, no amount of Bible study, prayer, or church attendance will grant us immunity from being tempted by this sin. Because in this patriarchal society, every man will be tempted to erase women from the narrative. Men and women today need to be aware that this is how men left unchecked will behave. Now, I must confess that my male ego does not like being exposed like this. A few years ago, I would have fought against the pastor telling me about this masculine temptation. I would have tried to convince that pastor that I was one of the good men, that I wouldn't fall to this temptation because I was well-educated and had a vibrant prayer life. But recently, I have found that convincing myself that I am one of the good ones in issues of gender, race, and orientation actually does much more harm than it does good. Convincing myself that I am a good one preserves and protects my reputation for myself and prevents me from changing to ensure greater equality and greater love for others. Not only that, but I, I know my sins. And for me to stand before you today and talk about how much I believe in gender equality while ignoring the stories in my own history is to participate in the very sin that the author of Chronicles committed thousands of years ago. To my brothers listening to this today, we need to be aware that if we do not pay attention, then we will erase women from the narrative, from the table, from the boardroom, and from our history. We will do all of this in an effort to preserve a reputation, an institution, a church, or even a police department. If you do not know the story of Breonna Taylor, then it is important that you know her story today. Back in March of 2020, police officers received a tip that Breonna Taylor's ex-boyfriend was storing drugs in her home. Half past midnight, police officers who were in plain clothes used a battering ram to burst into her home, where Breonna Taylor and her current boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, were sleeping. Walker thought his home was being broken into, so using his legally owned firearm in his home, defending his own territory, he shot at the officers who were in plain clothes. The officers fired back more than 25 times. 
all of those bullets missed their intended target, which was Kenneth Walker. At least six of those bullets struck Breonna Taylor, who died on the scene. After an exhaustive search, the police department did not find any drugs on the premises of Breonna Taylor's home. Just this past week, more than six months later, a grand jury in Kentucky came forward with a decision that all of the police officers were justified for killing Breonna Taylor with multiple bullets because her boyfriend shot at the officers first. Only one officer currently faces charges. And he doesn't face charges for the six bullets that killed Breonna Taylor. He faces charges for the 20 bullets that missed Breonna Taylor and ended up in the drywall. Those bullets are a bigger problem to our legal system than the bullets that murdered. This is an outrage. This is an injustice. This is racism. And the grand jury's decision reveals that it's more a crime to miss a black person with a gun than it is to shoot a black person with a gun. The police department of Louisville is corrupt, racist, and sexist. And they are leaving this tragedy without anyone being held accountable and with no reforms being enacted. The criminal justice system of Kentucky wants all of us to forget about Breonna Taylor completely to preserve the reputation of three white male police officers who murdered Breonna Taylor that evening. They are hoping that white Americans will ignore the Constitution and believe that a black man and a black woman do not have the right to defend their home with a firearm in America. This is the same right that many white Americans consider to be fundamental to their national identity today. Perhaps this is why the phrase, say her name, resonates with us so deeply. Because we know that we are tapping into one of the deepest, most subversive traditions in our faith. This tradition requires us to carefully read the text and discover something bigger in the contradiction. Men tried to erase Mishal in an effort to protect David. Churches led by men continue to try to erase Mishal to protect David. But when we show how men erased her name and we continue to say Mishal's name, it exposes the misogyny of the system, the religion, and the authors who wrote the Bible. When we say Mashal's name, she dares us to stand up and say enough, to fight back against the patriarchy and participate in the holy work of gender equality. The powers that be in Kentucky desperately want us to stop saying Breonna Taylor's name. Police officers wish that we would forget about her. They want us to view her death as a senseless but necessary statistic of collateral damage that comes with policing in a violent world. They want us to ignore the fact that this keeps happening in America, that black Americans rarely receive justice when a police officer strikes them down because of the color of their skin. We will not ignore this. We refuse to reduce Breonna Taylor to a number, a hashtag, a cause, a marketing opportunity, or even a sermon illustration. Her life was so much more than the events that transpired on March 13, 2020. She was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She attended the University of Kentucky. She became a licensed EMT for the city of Louisville. 
She took care of COVID patients during the early stages of this pandemic. Her mother, Tamika Palmer, described her as full of life and all that life had to offer. We must remember the life of Breonna Taylor, even when the patriarchy, dominated by white men, wants us to forget her. Her name reminds me of Mashal's name, and we must say her name because her name is holy. My brothers, sisters, and friends, may we say the names of women who men would prefer that we forgot. May we say the names of people of color that whiteness would prefer that we forgot. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even in our history.